Now, let's see how this goes here. So this afternoon, we're going to give you a little more on Christian nationalism. But I've kept my slide deck shorter so that we'll have some time for discussion before we completely wear out the saints of the Most High. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I certainly agree with Pastor Greg. Sabbath afternoon is a fantastic time to indulge lay activities, right? Um, <clears throat> all right, enough of the corny jokes here. All right, let's see, what am I doing here? Oh, I've got it upside down. Okay, that should do it. So, I introduced in the sermon the concept of dominionism. For a number of years, key uh, leaders of the Christian right conservative movement would publicly disavow dominionism. But more recently, at the various rallies and events, dominionism has taken center stage, and it is very much uh, public. Now, R.J. Rushduni is kind of the, the grandfather, the philosopher of dominionism. He wrote a three-volume set called The Institutes of Biblical Law, and um, his whole approach is to insist that all of the law in the Torah and the Hebrew scriptures is relevant today, that there is only one form of law, and that's law given by God. All law is religious in nature. Every, misprint there, every biblical law order represents an anti-Christian religion. So it's very much an us versus them. It, it's my way or the highway the only true order is founded on biblical law. Now, of interest for Adventists, you know, there's a lot of capital offenses in the scriptures. Rush Dooney, in applying those to modern life, he um, uh, omits Sabbath breaking from his list of capital offenses, interestingly enough, but has a long list of others. Now, Peter Wagner is uh, emeritus professor at Fuller Seminary in, um, in Pasadena. He wrote a book some years back called Dominion and, and really popularized the notion of dominionism and this idea of the seven mountains, that God has commanded true Christians to gain control of the seven mountains of culture and influence, which you see listed on the slide. All aspects of life, Christians are to exercise dominion and control. And, you know, seeing as how he taught an entire generation of, of religion and theology students at Fuller, uh, he was very instrumental in what became the New Apostolic Reformation that we talked about this morning. Very much a proponent of it. Now, one current manifestation of dominionism that has swept the nation 
are these Reawaken America tours that Michael Flynn has been uh, one of the leading lights in. And again, you know, the things that I'm talking about, I'm not talking about to play into the political divisiveness or to, you know, to take sides on, on policy or political matters. I'm really focused on the spiritual significance in light of prophecy, okay? Obviously, uh, Flynn has served this nation as a general under um, different administrations, both Republican and Democrat. It was in the Trump administration that he really uh, became discredited and, and served a very, very short time as national security advisor. But he has been a champion of this dominionist concept and the, and the political rallies that they have been doing all over the country are really a combination of kind of a revival religious um, evangelistic meeting and a political rally. It's, it's a very much a hybrid combination coming together of church and state. And, and you see, you know, his philosophy, if we're going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion. One nation under God and one religion under God. Well, whose religion is that going to be? And what if you're not part of that religion? You know, Many years ago, I was, when I first got out of law school, I was active in religious liberty circles in New York. I was first practicing in New York. And I attended an event from an organization that had been involved in some of the early parochial cases, you know, the challenges to tax funding of religious education. And the speaker at one of these luncheons was Alan Dershowitz you know, renowned um, law professor, lawyer, and Jewish. And the thing that I remember from his presentation was he asked the question, whose house is it? He said, if America is a Christian house, then we Jews have no right to complain about, you know, crosses and creches and, you know, prayer in schools and, you know, all manner of Christianity in public life. But he said, if, if America is a house for all of us, then there needs to be a separation of church and state. And public life needs to be inclusive of you know, people of all faiths. And I remember that question, whose house is it? Because, of course, people like Michael Flynn are insisting, no, this nation is a Christian nation. It's a house for Christians. And anyone else, you know, you're welcome to stay as long as you understand who owns the house. That's pretty much how it is. Now, again... I'm not using this quote for partisan purposes, but because I think it is symptomatic of something that we need to understand 
that is prevalent in our nation today. The attacks that we're hearing, the, the extent to which the American church and the conservative movement have abandoned church-state separation is the extent to which they have um, returned to a pre-Vatican II Constantinian theory of church-state relations. You know, prior to Vatican II, Roman Catholic doctrine did not recognize the validity of any separation between church and state. The state was required, in Catholic view, to uphold the truth as it is taught and understood by the Catholic Church. That was the role of the state. And that and that's where so-called Protestant America has been drifting back to a pre-Vatican II model of church-state relations. And one of the symptoms of that is the attacks on separation of church and state. And so last summer, uh, summer before last, this would have been 2022, speaking at a religious service, Lauren Boebert, it was a megachurch in Colorado, made the comment that was widely quoted in, um, here in the Washington Post and elsewhere, the church is supposed to direct the government, the government is not supposed to direct the church. That's not how our founding fathers intended it. She added, I'm tired of the separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. Now, I'm not quoting her because she is a particular authority on anything. Um, She's a reflection of an attitude that is prevalent in a broad segment of our nation and our culture today. Um, so it's not, you know, this is not to, you know, take pot shots at Lauren Boebert. That's not the point of my citing this, this quote. With respect to her comment about the stinking letter, I, I do have to say it's in very poor taste to insult the third president of the United States after he's gone, Thomas Jefferson, the letter that she is referring to is a letter that Jefferson wrote on January 1st of 1801. Um, I don't believe he had been inaugurated yet, but he'd been elected president. And there was a Baptist leader in uh, New England by the name of Isaac Bacchus, and the story is actually written in a recent issue of Liberty Magazine. Bacchus was a a very active champion of the separation of church and state and uh, worked for the disestablishment of religion in in New England life and in the, the federal, you know, in the U.S. nation. And so with the election of Jefferson, Isaac Bacchus raised funds and secured a gift for our new president, a gift of an 1,100-pound wheel of cheese. I don't know how you make 
an 1,100-pound wheel of cheese. Uh, must have been a pretty strong wagon that carted that 1,100-pound wheel of cheese from Connecticut, from the Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, down to... Um, I'm not sure, was the, was, the, uh, was the government in Washington at that point? I, I think it, it might have been. I, I haven't looked at that. But wh wherever it was, the Baptists sent this gift to Jefferson and, you know, asked for some guidance as to whether they had any security in their religious freedom. And it was the response to that that Jefferson wrote about uh, the separation of church and state. But, you know, what's, what people miss in that letter, there's five different specific rights protected in the First Amendment. Do you know what they are? When I ask high school, when I ask academy kids, you know, if they know what's in the First Amendment, they can tell me more members of the Simpsons family than they can rights in the First Amendment. What are they? Come on, help me out. First Amendment rights. Free speech. Good. That's the Second Amendment. Freedom of assembly. That's two. Freedom of religion, but there's two different clauses there, right? There's free exercise and establishment, no establishment of religion. And the last one, the right to petition the government for the redress of grievances. And Jefferson says that he, um, that it is the entire, I want to say it's the entire First Amendment that uh, that uh, constitutes the separation of church and state. It's not just the establishment clause, but establishment and free exercise together. Very, very significant. Um, but that view of what we looked at in Sabbath school time of you know, the principles that make America truly great and the two lamb-like horns, what's really Christian about America is being rejected today in a big, big way. We saw this slide during the worship service about Christian nationalism, that it really wants its view of scripture uh, and its view of law as the law of the land, which is very consistent with what we just saw from the likes of R.J. Rushduni. You know, it's dominionism. We get to rule. It's their narrow view of, of Christ as a Calvinist Jesus who's very exclusive. Um, we've got another slide coming up eventually. Did I hit the wrong button? There we go. <clears throat> So I'm giving you the rest of her quote here. Christian nationalism looks backward on a fictionalized history of America's allegedly Christian founding and forward to a future in which its versions 
of the Christian religion and its adherents, along with their political allies, enjoy positions of exceptional privilege and power in government and law. And they've achieved that to some extent with our current Supreme Court. Now, um, I always forget, but I think it's Samuel Perry, the guy on the, presumably the guy on the bottom, um, although I could be mistaken who's who, um, who's going to be a speaker at a conference that the North American Division is putting on in a few weeks at Southern Adventist University. We're looking at uh, kind of, I think we call it reconstructing religious liberty. We're looking at challenges from both the left and the right um, and doing it at a college campus and, and hoping to interest the students. These are sociologists. They're studying the phenomenon from an academic standpoint, doing research, doing surveys, and the like. And so, you know, they have a, a similar but they, uh, view of Christian nationalism, but they, they're approaching it from a scholarly point of view where um, Catherine Stewart is very much in the trenches um, in, you know, in the churches and in the rallies and, and participating and from the inside really looking and feeling and talking with people and understanding what their experience is and what their mindset is. So these guys write in the book Taking America Back for God, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. But the Christianity of Christian nationalism is of a particular sort. It represents something more than religion. It includes assumptions of, and we're going to unpack what these words mean, Nativism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and heteronormativity, along with divine sanction for authoritarian control and militarism. That's a mouthful. So let's kind of uh, bring this down to where we live. Nativism. Basically, uh, if you're not native-born, white, American, you don't count, you don't belong. White supremacy. I think you know what that means. Patriarchy. Very much male-dominated, um, you know, male headship-oriented. Uh, women as subservient, as property, um, etc. Heteronormativity, which is another word for... Um, you know, kind of the biblical norm of marriage between a man and a woman, and if you're not, um, if you're not heteronormative, then you don't deserve to have any rights. Um, along with divine sanction for authoritarian control and militarism. So it is very much, it is not a democratic Movement. It doesn't respect democratic norms. Um, it's very authoritarian. 
What's that? It comes from Russia. No, this is a homegrown American. Well, so since you mentioned Russia, though, shortly after Russia's invasion, what, uh, almost two years ago now, of, of Ukraine. Um, one of the things that was so upsetting to me, and the invasion itself is upsetting enough, um, the Archbishop Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church, very strongly publicly supportive of the Russian military endeavors in Ukraine. And, and what we saw was that Putin had reestablished the historic relationship between church and state in Russia that had um, suffered during the Soviet era. Because in Russia, there always was very much a very close uh, association. I, I, did, I had a client who was um, studying for the ministry for the priesthood in the Russian Orthodox Church in America. And I did a, 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 an interview with him on Freedom's Ring about um, the history and really the, the relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the czars was even closer than that between uh, the popes and the Holy Roman emperors. Very, very close. Now, there is a very strong segment within the American political scene these days that is very strongly pro-Putin. And one of the things that, Pu that Putin has done is characterize Russia as the true champion of Christian values. Because, you know, they don't allow homosexuality, they don't allow abortion, and Putin will mock the moral degradation of the United States and claim we're the champions of Christian civilization. Of course, it is a white Christian nation, and that has resonated with certain segments of American life. So I'm glad you mentioned Russia. You know, if, if you want to know what it looks like to abandon the separation of church and state, take a look at Iran. Perfect example of what happens when religion and government become closely intertwined. Look at Saudi Arabia. Um, very, very good examples of what it is that we are gravitating to when we attack the separation of church and state. Um, let me say something about, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit, because I have my threefold um, union slide about um, the Adventist perspective on, on the rights of gays. So let's keep it going here. Gary North was R.J. Rush Dooney's son-in-law. The thing about this quote, and it's, it's an old one, it's from a book, you know, any of us who speak regularly, we're capable of saying intemperate things. You know, in the heat of the moment, we can get up and say something that we regret. But when you go to publication, when you publish something, you know, there's a bunch of steps 
between, you know, you may write something, but then there's a bunch of eyes that are looking at it and saying, is this really what you want to say before it goes to press? Gary North wrote in 1988 and published in a book called The Intellectual Schizophrenia of the New Christian Right. He says, let's be blunt about it. We must use the doctrine of religious liberty to gain independence for Christian schools until we train up a generation of people who know there is no religious neutrality, no neutral law, no neutral education, and no neutral central civil government. Then they will get busy constructing a Bible-based social, political, and religious order which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. That's Revelation 13 right there in a nutshell, isn't it? And he laid out the philosophy and the strategy bluntly, what, uh, 35 years ago? My math is right? You know, this has been coming for a long time. It's very, very deliberate. And, you know, I'll hear questions from Adventists about when are the Sunday laws coming, and they don't even see the train wreck that is about to mow them over. Keep it going here. Oh, I thought I took this slide out. Well, it's here. Um, you know, here's the thing. So, these dominionists have very much made inroads even in Congress, in the White House in recent years. This is one of them. Ralph Drolinger was ever present in, in White House Bible studies for a number of years. You know, just a modern example of dominionist philosophy. The institution of the state is an avenger of wrath, and its God-given responsibility is to moralize a fallen world through the use of force. The state is supposed to be the moral enforcer? Remember what we read from uh, Jefferson? That'll just make us a nation of hypocrites. Right? And he expressed the view that Donald Trump excels in these biblical criteria for leadership. Exercising force to moralize a fallen world. Okay? Um, maybe that's one of his qualities. Whether it's biblical, um, I, I would tend to differ. Christian believers, he says, will someday soon, I hope, become the consummate perfect governing authorities. That's their view. Christians get to rule, and the rest who don't agree with them are toast. Okay, I don't know why I had that. Uh, we're going to have even fewer slides then. Okay, because those were dupes. So, There's a debate going on in Adventism. I understand why there are Adventist conservatives who look at the excesses of what is being called woke culture and they find uh, things that they don't like. I understand that. But I got a couple of thoughts. First off, I had to school a very close friend of mine 
who used the term woke in a pejorative manner. The term comes out of the African-American experience of oppression. To use the term in a pejorative you may not understand that it is racist, but it's certainly perceived that way by those who don't share your point of view. Um, the term should not be used as a pejorative. It's not a way to insult those whose values differ from your own. The fact of the matter is, Within Adventism, the Religious Liberty Department folks for long before I ever showed up 30 years ago, we have always understood from the writings of Ellen White that prophecy is not fulfilled because of the intolerance of the left. Prophecy is fulfilled because of Christian intolerance from the right. It is very clear. Ellen White answers the question, and if you've been in this church very long, you probably memorized this statement. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States... Who? The Protestants will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power and under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. Great Controversy, page 588. Is there anyone who has never read this statement? Is this unfamiliar to any of us? So, the threefold union. Now, what I want to do for a few minutes here is talk to you about what I call the glue. It is fully established. And what is it that has created this threefold union? One aspect of it is abortion politics. Now I say abortion politics, not the belief that abortion in most circumstances is immoral. Adventists are pro-life in the sense that we do not believe that abortion is moral, except there are exceptions, narrow exceptions. And I won't go into all of that. I'm not medically inclined. Um, but our belief about abortion <clears throat> is very, it used to be very mainstream Protestant. I say used to be because we haven't changed. Protestantism has changed, has been under the influence of Roman Catholic teaching. Now, Roman Catholic teaching about abortion is doctrinally based. And what is the doctrine that it's based on? The doctrine of the immortality of the soul. What did Ellen White say? Two great errors. 
We haven't seen Sunday sacredness yet really take root as uh, having prominent political influence, but we certainly have seen the immortality of the soul. How so? Roman Catholic doctrine believes that the immortal soul enters human life when? At what point? Conception. The political movement to punish women and to punish doctors and to outlaw abortion at earlier and earlier stages is driven by their doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And Protestants are going right along with it, whether or not they share the doctrine. Now, there is a myth, an origin myth, in terms of the foundation of the modern Christian political movement, what we used to call the religious right, that more and more we're just calling Christian nationalism or white Christian nationalism. The myth is that it was a reaction to Roe versus Wade. It was not. The reality is that mainstream leaders, uh, Southern Baptists and others, welcomed Roe v. Wade. They thought that the abortion laws should be, that they were too restrictive, and that there should be a balance. That was not what produced the moral majority and the Christian coalition and the roots of the modern Christian political endeavor. It was something entirely different that has been carefully documented by a Christian scholar by the name of Randall Balmer, who for some years served as an associate editor at Christianity Today. His recent short book is called Bad Faith, Race, and the Rise of the Religious Right. 1954, Supreme Court issues its unanimous decision in Brown versus Board of Education, uh, ending legal segregation of public schools. One of the upshots of that is that throughout, especially the South, the churches began to establish literally tens of thousands of segregated Christian schools, most of which remain mostly segregated to this day. And at the time, neither federal law nor state laws made it illegal to discriminate in that sort of public accommodation. But eventually, believe it or not, it was under the Nixon administration that the IRS began to question whether segregated private schools were entitled to be uh, tax-exempt because, of course, segregation was pretty much anathema in terms of public policy. And the very first lawsuits brought against Christian school was brought under the Nixon administration. It wasn't under Carter or some liberal. It was from a conservative Republican administration. 1976, the prominent um, conservative Christian uh, university, Bob Jones University, 
comes under fire. They get sued by the IRS. And that is what really woke up the sleeping beast of this evangelical subculture that had pretty much stayed out of politics for a long time and led them to reject a bona fide Baptist Sunday school teacher for a divorced Hollywood actor and support Ronald Reagan for president. Very interesting dynamics, how you know it got launched. But it wasn't abortion, it was race. Now, they couldn't very well organize on the basis of racial beliefs and attitudes and policies. So the Protestants finally succumbed to the influence of Catholicism. The Catholic political operatives were trying to make common cause with Protestants for some time. And so they finally created this myth of abortion and really saw in opposition to abortion an opportunity for power. And so that became the first part of the glue. Now, of course, there was also opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s. But then as gay rights began to become uh, a factor in society, the right began to... um, Protestants and Catholics became profoundly anti-gay. The problem that I see, well, it's consistent, you know, the the sort of being anti-gay and and the, the support for the doctrine of marriage. I mean, of course, Adventists believe marriage is between a man and a woman. That's biblical. That's what we believe, right? Um, But the problem, of course, is you either have a Jesus who died to save everybody, including gays, or you have an exclusive Jesus. And if you have a Jesus who died to save gays, then if your public policy is anti-gay, you're basically saying you don't need to bother with Jesus because, you know, Jesus doesn't respect your rights and, and we don't want you. We don't like your kind around here. Um, That's something that Jews and African Americans have in our common experience. You know, when Alan Dershowitz uh, got done clerking for Justice Goldberg at the United United States Supreme Court, there wasn't a, uh, a wasp, remember that term? We don't use that anymore. There wasn't a Protestant law firm white shoe law firm in New York City that would hire him. Very, you know, very anti-Semitic. Today there's been a, a huge rise of anti-Semitism both here and world, and it really is the canary in the coal mine of religious intolerance. You know, we Adventists think that we're going to be the focus of, of the final events of prophecy, and maybe we will. But maybe, just maybe, the historic Um, punching bag will be the Jews as they always have been and maybe we just get caught up with the Jews you know, I don't know we don't know exactly how it's going to go down 
Now I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, our first obligation as a church, as Christians, when it comes to the issue of gay rights in the gay community, is to make Jesus accessible to gays. Is that right? Jesus died to save all sinners. And there is nothing special about sexual sin of any kind. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And we are told repeatedly that we are not the judge. There is someone else who gets to judge the heart. And it ain't us. So our only role is to encourage others in a relationship with Christ, not to create walls because of somebody else's beliefs, practices, lifestyle, sexual identity, or what have you. They are our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And it's only when we treat them that way that we have any hope of their salvation. So the politics that is opposing gay rights is contrary to the gospel. It is a misrepresentation of the character of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, you may be surprised to learn, because after all, our general conference is generally understood by Adventists to be pretty conservative and pretty, you know, uh, straight down the line of Adventist teaching, right? Uh, it's, it's not, you know, in some kind of far-left camp. Our general conference has endorsed a legislative effort in Congress that we're part of called Fairness for All that would be a compromise, a protection of both, broadly speaking, LGBT rights and religious freedom, recognizing that the state should protect all of our rights, that we all have the right to live in peace according to our own identity, our own values, our own beliefs. And so it would protect um, broadly rights in terms of employment discrimination, housing discrimination, uh, right to public accommodations, but it would also protect the right of religious institutions to practice according to our own beliefs about things like marriage. So it would eliminate a lot of the conflict. Not all of it, but it would eliminate a lot of it, and it would show respect. It's not endorsement of somebody's lifestyle. It's a recognition that we answer to God, not to one another. Right? So it's called fairness for all. Last but not least, the glue that has brought this threefold union together is this pre Vatican II view of religious freedom that does not accept any separation of church and state and that has been pushing more and more for government funding of religion. Now, it used to be that the rule was no tax dollars for religion. 
And there were a whole series of cases, and the scholars would criticize whether the court was, you know, uh, just all over the map in terms of what they would say you could fund and what you couldn't fund. Could you bus kids to religious schools with public transportation, busing, you know, the, the school buses, you know, or provide curriculum materials or, you know, what you could do. But the basic rule was you don't fund religion, and, and maybe there's some exceptions where, you know, some sorts of benefits are allowed. Nobody's ever questioned, for example, if uh, the church is on fire, whether the fire department can come and put out the fire. That's a benefit available generally to, to all. Um, beginning in about 2000 with a case called Mitchell versus Helms that was brought, litigated by uh, one of my mentors, Seventh-day Adventist attorney by the name of Lee Boothby. Lee was very close to Elder Stevens, by the way, who many of you probably know because he did a stint here as conference president in Arizona before going to the Religious Liberty Department in the Pacific Union. Um, since that time, the court has begun to shift, and finally, in about 2015, a case involving a, a Lutheran church, the court did 180. It used to be the rule was you can't fund religion, the court skipped over the notion of, well, you're permitted, the state is permitted to fund religion under some circumstances, and they went all the way the other direction. If you exclude the church from otherwise available funding, that's discrimination. You have to fund religion. And that's the rule today. And that's one reason why we haven't seen court challenges to the recent um, opening the spigots here in Arizona for public funding of private education. I'm sorry? The teachers, of course they are. Um, I'll just say this about public funding of education. So obviously, if you're a parent and you get to send your kid to church school on the public dime, you know, you're going to be very thankful for that. Public funding sows the seeds of the destruction of our entire system. It does. The golden rule has never been repealed. I don't mean the one that says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I mean the other golden rule. You know, the one that says, he who's got the gold makes the rules? You never heard that one? He who's got the gold makes the rules. You know, every funding scheme that I've ever seen requires compliance with generic non-discrimination rules. And if they are ever enforced, that means that we can no longer hire Seventh-day Adventist teachers in our Seventh-day Adventist schools. And what is a Adventist school without Adventist teachers? 
Well, it's kind of what we call a school that takes public money. A public school. So we may be okay for a little while, and there may be places where we're okay for a little while. I, you know, I had this, I had a long discussion years ago with some voucher advocates in Texas. 45 minutes we were chatting, and at the end of the discussion I said, well, it may be that in Texas you can take the money and not have the government, you know, crunch you with various rules and telling you what you can and cannot teach and the like. In California, we know better. And if you want to be able to teach about, you know, God as creator, and you want to criticize evolutionary theory and biology, uh, if you want to teach marriage, it's between a man and a woman, you know, all kinds of things that, that we might want to teach from a biblical point of view that the state would not be permissive of if they started to look at our curriculum, which they would have every right to do, right? So the threefold union is formed. It just, you know, the way that I have described this, and I think this applies in, to the fulfillment of prophecy. Ellen White talks about how every principle of our Constitution as a Protestant and Republican government will be repudiated, that we will repudiate every principle. And in a sense, where we are in that spectrum is kind of like the old Roadrunner cartoon. Now, maybe there's somebody who doesn't remember that the Roadrunner would be chased by Wiley e. Coyote and he would stop at the edge of the cliff, and Wiley e. Coyote would go sailing out over the edge of the cliff with those little legs spinning, and then would come that uh-oh moment when he's hanging in thin air, and he looks down, and he realizes that the foundations have, there's nothing under him. There's just that pause before he goes whoosh. You remember that. We are like Wiley e. Coyote hanging over thin air. The constitutional foundations, the, the foundations of our country have already been crumbling. The wall of separation between church and state is a pile of rubble. We've sailed out over the abyss. We just haven't fallen into it yet. Yet. But prophecy tells us that we will. Hang on one second. My computer shut down here. One last Ellen White quote, and then let's open it up for some discussion. Desire of Ages, page 509, what she saw in her day perfectly describes the religious movements of our day. She says, today in the religious world are multitudes who believe that they're working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. 
They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in its courts and military camps, its legislative halls, its palaces and marketplaces. Is that not dominionism? That's what she's describing. They expect him, Christ that is, to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authority. Since Christ is not here now in person, they will very graciously um, consent to act in his stead. Right? They will undertake to act in his place. Um, you know what the term antichrist means in the Greek, don't you? We think of anti as like against. But in the Greek, anti is in the place of. Right? So this is very much describing an antichrist. We'll take the place of Christ and rule in his place to execute the laws of his kingdom. The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He would not accept the earthly throne. Amen? So what I want to close with and open it up for discussion is kind of a reminder because we Adventists know that we believe the three angels' messages, but I wonder sometimes if we really know what they are. So I, I just want a little refresher here on the second angel's message. Because the first one we talked about this morning is, a, is the call to return to the worship of the Creator. The second angel says that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And who is Babylon? Well, we saw that Babylon is the name put on the corrupt church, fallen into harlotry, right? Riding on the beast. That's Babylon, is the church. And why has she fallen? Because she made all nations do something. She imposes her will upon the nations. Well, what is it that she makes them do? She makes them drink her wine. Well, what is wine a symbol of? Jesus said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. What was he talking about? He said, the gospel cannot be contained within the structures of, of Judaism. God's love, God's salvation is bigger than one nation. It's bigger than our religious structures and institutions. I think there's a message there for us as Adventists. The gospel, did you hear me, is bigger than how we do church. God does not fit in the boxes that we make for him. I am exhibit A because where I was at when God first spoke to me was way far away from anything religious.
Babylon imposes her will on the nations and makes the nations drink her wine. Well, her wine is a counterfeit of the gospel. Right? It's a counterfeit of the gospel. It's a form of salvation, but it's the salvation of the nation, not not God's salvation. It's the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, what is the fornication that is being spoken of here? Fornication is immoral, intimate relationship, right? It's an intimate relationship that is immoral. With whom is the church in relationship that is immoral? With the state. This is the coming together of church and state. That's our understanding of the warning of the second angel's message. So when we hear the Christian world attacking the separation of church and state, our response has to be to sound the alarm. That, you know, we're, this is going down the wrong road, right? Now, where does the wrath come in? The wrath is the power of law, it's the power of the state to enforce the wine, the teachings, the doctrines, the institutions of the church. It's what comes out of the the coming together of church and state is the wrath to those who don't consent, to those who are dissenters. That's where the mark of the beast and the economic sanctions and the capital punishment and all become the wrath of the fornication. Does that make sense? So this is what we're called to do. So why is it that in all these years I keep preaching about these prophecies and and how modern American life and the church is fulfilling prophecy? It's because I was taught that our mission as Adventists is to proclaim the messages of these three angels, that Babylon is fallen. And today, it's clear to me that Babylon has already fallen. And, you know, no. Do we have the mark of the beast yet? No, we don't. But I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know when it's coming. Next week, next month, next year, next decade, next whatever. But I will say this. You know, the pendulum swings back and forth, politically, religiously, socially, what have you. We've had this swing to the conservative movement. If this movement doesn't fulfill prophecy, are we going to have a planet left, you know, in another generation or two, if it swings back and forth another time? You know, for those of us who take... Uh, various things seriously. It's certainly like, like the, the uh, ecological disasters, and uh, it, it sure doesn't seem like um, we've got a long time left on this planet. But, you know, we don't know. So with that, I'm going to um, invite comments, questions. Pastor, maybe um, we've got a mic that we can um, circulate, and I will... Come down.
And uh, maybe it's something that we've talked about, maybe it's something else that is on your mind, but um, let's take a few minutes and... If I'm gonna circulate the mic, you're gonna to have to stay right there though. Okay. No, not, a, not up there, o over here. You can still be down. Okay. You just but can't. In other words, stay in front of the camera. Stay in front of the camera. Because you're, right. not gonna, you're not going to be yeah. able to follow me around with the camera. I'll give you a little more uh, leeway. Here we go. Don't be shy. No thoughts, no comments. I think we're fighting the sleep. Hang on for the mic so everybody can. At the very end, you mentioned ecological issues. The uh, globe, when I was born, probably had at best 2 billion people on it. It's eight, over 8 billion now. And uh, potable water is an issue over, over half the planet doesn't drink safe potable water. Food sources are an issue. Uh, what, a billion or two people go to bed hungry every night by the UN numbers? Uh, with population going out of control and doubling at the rate it is, that alone would indicate to most people that this can't go on forever without some massive catastrophe, famine, war, whatever. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I believe, if I'm remembering what I had read not too long ago, population is expected to peak and then decline. And of course, um, population growth among some segments has already um, started declining. Um, China, interestingly enough, is facing a, an economic crisis brought on by their one-child policy. Um, you know, for generations, we have built an economy based on consumption, based on continual expansion and growth and consumption, and that model is unsustainable. So you're right, economically it's unsustainable, and, and China, for example, um, is lacking in the human resources to sustain a consumption-based economy. In the United States, you know, you want to complain about inflation. Well, there's really two main factors right now driving inflation. Uh, initially, during the pandemic, there were supply chain issues, but those have been resolved. You have, number one, you have um, price gouging. You have companies that as soon as you see the word I on the front page of the paper, they jack up their prices and their profits are through the roof. So that's price gouging. But the other one is a labor shortage because of years of very strict immigration policies, right? The fact is that there are large segments of our economy that demand and require immigrant labor. And without it, labor costs go through the roof and we have labor shortages. Um, and, and that has driven up, uh, nobody's earning minimum wage anymore, everybody's earning a lot more than minimum wage because nobody's gonna work for minimum wage, right? Um, your basic point though, I think is certainly sound 
that the impact of you know, human population on global resources is taking its toll on Mother Earth. And it really does seem unsustainable. I mean, one of the things I look to is the melting of uh, the global ice caps on both sides and, and the risk that's posed there. You know, we, I, I like to joke about, uh, you know, uh, going to Florida now while you still can because it's going to be underwater pretty soon. And, you know, frankly, I'm not a fan of Florida. It would be okay with me if it were underwater. But, you know, Miami, Miami, their building codes now require that they're building on pillars. You know, they're, they're preparing for it. In New York City, they're talking about porous um, sidewalks. You know, they had, I want to say it was, her, was it Hurricane Andrew, but, you know, they had flooding in lower Manhattan, what have you. And, and so they're talking about, well, how are we going to deal with uh, seawater rise? And, and there's a lot of nations that are already, uh, some of the island nations, really suffering from, from seawater rise. So these, you know, our problem, of course, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to kind of deny uh, the impact on the environment if it's not affecting us directly, right? You know, it's easy to kind of, you know, kick the can down the road or just, you know, um, say, well, I don't see it, I don't know anything about it, and, uh, and say it doesn't exist. But it, it, again, we're living in a post-truth age of alternative facts, and the facts are what I say they are. You know, uh, that's the way that we have become. And it makes it very difficult to, you know, to really do policy. Go ahead. What's your opinion of, well, this is part, partly related to what other brother was talking about, but this whole, um, goodness, it's going to me right now. Um, the, the Green New Deal and all that stuff. Is that part of how they're trying to change everything so radically? You know, look, first of all, my opinion is not particularly important. Um, and I haven't really looked in any depth at the specific policies of the Green New Deal. Um, so I can't really comment on you know, whether I think some of them are sound or unsound or what have you. Clearly, um, I mean, you know, for example, I, I'm not a particular fan of, of electric vehicles because one way or the other, the power's got to come from somewhere, right? Now, maybe, you know, long term, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a scientist or whatever. So, you know, maybe there is a way that in the end, um, uh, a large-scale conversion from, you know, uh, the internal combustion engine will you know, require less energy. I mean, we obviously don't have the grid for it now, right? But maybe, you know, so I, I don't know if that's a sound thing or not. You know, I'm an old guy. I like to hear the sound of my engine. I like to be able to drive to California on a tank of gas, you know, and not worry about, you know, having to stop and, you know, pause for where am I going to find a place to charge my car. So... You know, but that's just, you know, that's me. But, you know, ultimately, do we need sound policies 
that will deal with the environmental issues? Of course we do. What are they? That's not my area of expertise. Go ahead. I was just wondering, you know, I've been in the church a long time, 50 years or so. Do you think this message from our leader will be more out there? You know, I know we're responsible for doing some of our reading and some of our listening, but a lot of time it takes so long for the church to speak out about their concern about how these things fit into prophecy. The first thing I got to say, brother, is you're going to get me in trouble. I'm going to try to answer your question this way. For many years, my radio show was on 3ABN radio. Eventually, we got kicked off of 3ABN radio because some of what we were saying, my, my take on it, because it was what we were saying was um, straight Adventist perspective, but it wasn't conservative enough for some of the donor base. Yes. Wow. Well, and in particular, um, a show that I did with my counterpart from the Southern Union about um, the Adventist view of abortion and abortion politics. That was the last straw. Now, I have made inquiry as to whether um, any of our evangelists are talking about Christian nationalism. And they're not. They're not. And my sense is it's because there is too much politically conservative money in the Adventist church. Amen. Okay. Now, you know, maybe the tactful way for me to answer your question is not to implicate our, you know, our administrators but I will say, within the structure of the Adventist church, administration aren't the ones who are really public with our message. Administrators are doing things more behind the scenes in terms of managing the business of the church and supporting the work of the pastors and the evangelists and what have you. So. Um, Leadership, I mean, my observation for a long time, where do we find leadership within Adventism? We find management from our conference and union and, you know, our administrators. And, you know, I've been pleasantly pleased, you know, somewhat surprised, but pleased with the competence and quality of management. Leadership is in much shorter supply anywhere you look. But, you know, rather than try to figure out, you know, who's doing a good job or who, who's not doing a good job, 
I'm just struggling to try to be faithful to provide the leadership within my own sphere that you know, God has entrusted to me. But you know, one of my concerns in putting all of this material together is that because our biblical values very much are in line with those of our evangelical brothers and sisters, we are very much at risk of supporting all of these movements that will bring the mark of the beast. And I believe that Adventists are very much at risk of deception and you know that uh, the influence of conservative money within the Adventist church uh, is a problem. And I don't mean by conservative money, you know, those who are faithful to, uh, to the church or to Adventism. Um, there is a grave danger that we worship the American Jesus rather than the biblical Jesus. So I hope I don't risk getting fired over that. But, you know, I have a president who gets it. And, you know, he, he, he was my subordinate for five years in the Religious Liberty Department. Now he's my president. But, you know, we're, we're okay. But it does seem to be that they're very careful about what they say. They're, they're afraid uh, that they're going to say the wrong thing. Um, Anyway, that wasn't my comment. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's really true. But look. You don't think they're afraid of losing their jobs? Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I mean, I go back to when I was at Pacific Union College, and um, our, our Northern California Conference president came and made a comment about you know, there being room in the church for, uh, that was, Phil Follett was our president, room in the church for the likes of Desmond Ford and Irwin Gain. You know, the reality is there are those who want to define Adventism narrowly. And to criticize those who want to call themselves Adventists but don't believe exactly the way that they think that they should believe, right? Um, from an administrative standpoint, if we were to try to separate the wheat and the tares, uh, we would bring the whole house crashing down. So, you know, for administration to take sort of a big tent, you know, and a view and realize that we need to nurture all aspects of the church and not be driving people away is sound. It's, you know, it's not their role to, to try to take public positions that are going to drive people away. Now to my comment and question for input. Um, I'd say about five years ago, the school board that I was on was talking about the new opportunity that we had to take all the money that we could for every student that came in the doors. And, and um, my concern was what kind of plans are we going to make when the money stops? What kind of plans are we going to look at for these students or even the students that want to remain? Many of them, parents wouldn't want them to remain if the money wasn't there. Or the students that 
wanted to remain and the parents that wanted them to remain in Christian, in Seventh-day Adventist Christian education, what kinds of things are we going to look at to the future? And my minister said, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And um, I was always looked at as the liberal end of the spectrum on the church board and you know, within about a year, I wasn't on the church board anymore, a school board, although I had been for 10 years and been their school nurse for 10 years. Um, and I think that sometimes we bury our heads in the sand, and there's so many opportunities, and I know this is kind of an education question, but it also speaks to exactly what you were saying about the golden rule. Because we've seen it. We, we've seen it happen in our colleges. We've seen it happen in our um, medical institutions. And when that uh, rug gets pulled out from under you, my friend here that said that when that happened at Loma Linda, they had to start hiring people outside of the church. And, um, you know, there's so many things that we could be doing to because I believe that time will come. I'm not an end times person. I mean, I'm not afraid of the end times at all. I, maybe I should be, but at my age. I was when I was a kid, but haven't been for decades. But I think that there's also opportunity for us to properly plan if we have our eyes open to the kinds of limits that we are going to be under at some point in time with, with the way um, the legislation has been going. And I, would, I, I just wonder what, what your comment is about that. So I was profoundly influenced long before I ever started studying about church and state. I went back to New York City and I was doing Bible work at our community services program called the Van Ministry. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, heard about it. The Kretschmars ran this program, and about a third of our funding was from a budget from the conference, and two-thirds of it was fundraising. And Juanita would send out letters and talk about our experiences on the vans and encounters and you know the spirit of God leading and, and blessing in our ministry, and people would send in donations. And we had the experience over and over and over again where we would be praying for God to provide sufficient funding so we would not face embarrassment. Juanita Kretschmar budgeted by faith. She didn't know how much was going to come in, but, you know, it was kind of a faith budget. And I had a specific memory one time. I, I saw her many years later at an ASI meeting, and I asked her about this. And I said, do you remember the time when we were specifically praying for $32,000 and so many dollars and cents that we needed to meet our obligations at the end of the month, or the beginning of the next month, whatever it was. And we'd come in after work in the evening, and we'd have you know, season of prayer in the evening, and we'd have prayer. We had worship every morning to start the day, and we were praying, you know, for $32,000 and so many dollars and cents. And then one morning at worship, 
you tell us that you got a letter and you read to us how somebody said, Dear Sister Kretschmar, some months ago the Lord impressed us to sell this piece of property and to give the proceeds to the van ministry. Well, the property is now cleared escrow and we're pleased to enclose a check in the amount of $32,000 and so many dollars and cents to the exact penny of what we were praying for. Now, what do you think that does for your faith when you see God work in that way? Okay. Now, fast forward some years later. Um, I'm at the Pacific Union, and I catch wind of a lawsuit that... Um, it was called Columbia Union College at the time. Now it's Washington Adventist University. They filed a lawsuit, and they were seeking money, grant money from the state of Maryland, and they were saying, we're no more sectarian than the Catholic schools that are getting these grants. We should get the grants also. And I went to Elder Mostert, and I said, this is going to cause a problem for us because if we're no more sectarian than the Catholics, then we're going to lose the right to hire Seventh-day Adventist faculty and to operate our colleges according to our own religious values and, and beliefs. And of course, you know, there's not going to be a large distinction between Washington or between Columbia Union College and Pacific Union College and La Sierra University. We've got a problem here. And Elder Mostert authorized me to file a friend of the court brief against our own sister institution. Okay? Go figure. I certainly couldn't have done that on my own, right? I would have gotten fired if I had, right? I mean, that seems unthinkable, right? So, you know, sometime after that, well, two interesting things happened. Um, I had an encounter at an ASI meeting with the union president who um, was quite upset with me, and we had quite an altercation there, quite a discussion, and uh, I basically called him a liar to his face, and I told him he should take up his concerns with Elder Mostert because I couldn't have done anything without you know, you know, uh, support from the union president. But then I also, I think it might have been the following year, I had a lovely chat with a gentleman who had been the president of the college at the time, Elder Scriven, Chuck Scriven. And I told him the story that I just told you about my experience at the Van Center. And I said, Chuck, you guys missed an opportunity. Instead of going to the state and looking to the state for money, you could have called the faculty and the students and everybody who wanted to to come together and get on their knees and pray for an outpouring of God's blessing. And if, you answered, if God answered that prayer, what that would have done for the faith and the experience of that body of people, you missed an opportunity. Now, when I was first at the Pacific Union, one of my colleagues came to me and said that he had been with a group of Hispanic families and asked how many had kids in church school. And they said, you know, maybe one hand in a hundred went up. 
And he said, you know, really, vouchers would, would enable our immigrant kids and, you know, poor kids to be able to afford church school. Well, yeah, tuition is an issue, right? So I asked him this question. I said, what percentage of our members, not the ones who are on the books who don't really come to church much, but the ones who are in church week in and week out, what percentage of them are paying a faithful tithe? More or less than 50%, I asked. He said, way less than 50%. So then I said to him, then we don't have a financial problem. We have a spiritual problem. Because if we as a people really believed in Christian education, we don't need state money. We have enough money to give every kid who wants it, Adventist or otherwise, a Seventh-day Adventist education, regardless of their ability to pay. And if we were to exercise that faith, what an outpouring of blessing. Now, if you go to Europe, the churches are empty, the cathedrals are empty, some of the cathedrals have plaques on the back of the pews, they get funding from McDonald's or this foundation or that one, because they don't have active congregations that can maintain the church properties. Why? For a very long time, religion in Europe has been funded by tax dollars. And when the people don't care enough, they're not fully invested, then they lose interest. So, yeah, I get that the money is really a blessing if you're struggling now, and I get the fact that, well, we're not going to just turn around our tithing situation just by, you know, snapping the finger and, you know, we want to give our kids a Christian education. Now, I, I get, you know, kind of, I can come down off of my sort of, you know, philosophical high horse and, and recognize that we've got a real problem on our hands. But I, I know that we are missing a real blessing, a real opportunity, and that we're sowing the seeds of the destruction of our own educational system. So it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it? So that's, that's where my, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right, go ahead, we got somebody else here. I have a question. <clears throat> we know that women live longer than men in the United States by a substantial margin. If you think about that over a long period of time, that would mean that sooner or later the women would be superior to men in quantity. But we don't treat them equal. I know what Paul said, but I'd like to hear your comment about that. I missed part of what you said as the consequence of women living longer. Yes, women live longer in the United States than men. Right, and so what did you say right after that? So if you, if you prophesize then down the road, sooner or later there will be more women than men. Already is. And well, there more, probably already is. 
Maybe more in a certain age group. Yeah, 51 but to 48, I think, is the current discrepancy. So, but we don't treat them equal religious liberty-wise. You know, I want to say, what was it, 2012, we had a Pacific Union constituency, a special meeting called specific to the issue of ordination of women. I didn't ask to be a delegate. I was a delegate by virtue of my position. I was very unhappy being put in the position knowing that my general conference president felt one way and my union president felt another way, and here I was going to be having to cast a vote that was going to be one way or the other. Well, I went prayerfully, and I listened, and I prayed, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there was no debate. It was absolutely crystal clear. Um, Charles White, who many of you know, because he served here in Arizona for quite some time, he quoted, he spent his two minutes with um, uh, some insight from his great-grandmother, from Ellen White, um, others quoted things like the prophecy, I think it is it Joel, that your young women will prophesy and, and dream dreams and what have you. We heard about um, the, movement, the movement of the Holy Spirit in China. Most of the pastors in China are women. And, you know, the reality is that um, we have a warped view in the Adventist church of the role of women in the church. Um, we have a doctrine of ordination that says that the laying on of hands does not confer grace. The laying on of hands in ordination is man's recognition of God's call. And it's one reason, now I'm not I have not been, quote, ordained within the Adventist church, but it's one reason why I don't care about the ceremony. Years ago, when I had the opportunity to interview for this position, my good friend Clifford Goldstein said, it would be a miracle if God called you to the Pacific Union because they don't know you out there. Well, so the miracle happened. You know, here I've been for 30 years, right? Well, you know, we will hire women into the ministry. We will allow them to serve. And if we continue to allow them to serve after they have passed what we might call in employment circles a probationary period and they've proved their worth in ministry, and we continue to hire them, then we are recognizing God's call in their lives. And to say that we won't then formally recognize it in an ordination service is simple hypocrisy. It's, it's inconsistent. You know, either you say we're not going to hire women as clergy, or if you're going to hire them, then if they prove effective, ordain them. Um, but clearly, God simply does not fit into the boxes that we create. God works beyond 
you know, our little narrow scope of, of how we think he should work. It's just, you know, he's much bigger than that. And um, to exclude women from ministry makes no sense at all. What we really see happening is the infusion of um, heretical doctrine of male headship that has no historic uh, place in Adventism, and it's not biblical. And that's, it is the religion of Babylon that is influencing our attitudes to some extent. Um, but to be fair, glo- you know, we're a global church. And you have cultural influences in many parts of the world that see, you know, gender and relationships very differently than how we see them in North America. Which is why, you know, what we've said is we respect the fact that there's going to be differences of practice around the world, but let us practice according to how the Holy Spirit is leading us here. You know, we're not telling you you have to ordain women some other part of the world, um, but, you know, give us the freedom to follow what the Holy Spirit is doing here. And I think the end of the day, the real issue is how do we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what's really critical? There's a counterfeit Holy Spirit that's going to, that is sweeping the world. And we need to be clear that the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Spirit that we're following is, you know, the sound one. And, you know, our, we've had our theologians study out this issue, and the conclusion they came to is it's not a doctrinal issue. So, you know, you reference Paul, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to play amateur theologian, right? Uh, my expertise is law. But, you know, I'm going to pay attention to what our theologians are, are telling us if they told us that, yeah, thus saith the Lord one way or the other, well then, I would tell you that's what they're saying. Um, but they're not. They're saying it's not a theological issue. It's an, a practical issue of, you know, how we provide leadership within the church. I think I'm going to uh, call a, a moratorium. I think that was a good one to, to end on. It just, uh, um, I could be here forever. I'm not the one on, on my feet having to uh, come up with this. So uh, I want to thank Alan. Um, I want to thank him. I want to thank the position. I want to thank all of you because our tithe dollars uh, account for um, at least the Union Religious Liberty Department. And um, I hope that uh, if, if there is any other reason, you know, to appeal for more of us, you know, to be paying regular tithe, uh, remember we kick a percentage of our tithe up to the union and it funds our religious liberty departments and um, all, the way, um, all the way up to the general conference. So, but Alan, I, I really appreciate so much your ministry. Um, how many here uh, would put Alan on our prayer list as he continues to um, oh, I, I fight for justice? I would very much justice. welcome that, yeah. very much. And, uh, and by the way, we have, you know, we put out some of our Liberty Magazine offering appeal uh, 
brochures as well. And, uh, you know, the Liberty offering has taken a hit because of the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the magazine is fantastic. By the way, if, if you are not reading it, it's online. That's right. You know, check it out, libertymagazine.org. Fantastically interesting articles. Not, you're not going to resonate with all of them, but in every issue, you're going to find something that's going to grab you. You really will. And uh, um, it, it, it is a fantastic ministry of our church. You know, we've been publishing since the 1880s continuously on religious liberty under the name Liberty Magazine since 1906. So this is, and you know, you may not realize this, but around the globe, one of the mainstays of the Adventist reputation is our defense of religious liberty for, for all people. Okay. It's a really important part of, of how we're known and, and respected. I just want to you know, echo the frustration here. It is a world church, uh, but remember uh, where the real, I guess, love of Christ as far as the ministry is concerned, and that is the local church. The local church... Uh, means everything to the Adventist Church. If we get involved here, if we get involved on a local level, if we begin to make an influence in our own communities, then the world church would, if, if you look upon them as opposing uh, what we're, um, and anything, and, you know, pick an issue, what we're talking about, uh, then they have to listen to us pretty soon. Um, but we make the difference. The local church is what makes the difference. It's how we treat our own members. It's how we treat our neighbors. It's how we treat the people that we work with and go to school with. You can't, you can't legislate that from a general conference level. The, the conference, even though we're a world church, can't say, I want you to love your neighbor. We do that. So we let the, 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 the grace of Christ flow in us. We make the difference here. It isn't gonna be, it isn't gonna be done uh, from Silver Spring on down. It's going to be done from uh, Peoria on up. And uh, just to remind us all of that. So. But um, I think that uh, Alan might give you an opportunity to pet Luke on the way out. Mm -hmm.